wonderful Savior, precious Redeemer and friend. Who would have thought that a lamb could rescue the souls of men? Oh, you rescue the souls of men. You're the one. You chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. It is a blessing and a privilege to be with you all this morning. I just, uh, I'm just so in love with Jesus and to be able to share that with all of you and know that you're in love with Jesus and we get to come here and worship him and glorify and honor, honor his name. Isn't that wonderful? This is wonderful. I mean, we have the, the, the greatest privilege ever where we get to gather together as saints of the Lord and worship his holy name. Yeah. 
And our sister Kelly's here. She's out of the hospital. Praise God. She's doing better. So we're grateful for that. And we need to be lifting up uh, our beloved brother, Pastor Bill and Gene and Elin. And um, his mama went to, to be with Jesus yesterday, 91 years old. So Jesus is like, it has been a long time, daughter. I am so glad to see you. And so it is wonderful that she's with the Lord. No more pain, and it was no pain. But still, we want to pray for comfort for the family and just how we much we love that family back there. And, uh, and praise the Lord. We want to keep lifting up Ira. She's still in the hospital, okay, from the aneurysm uh, there. And so we want to keep praying for her to, to get stronger and feel better and as the Lord leads. Well, the Lord has us here in Luke chapter 11 this morning, and we've come this far. I mean, last we left off, it was with Mary and Martha, by the way. You remember that last week? And, you know, Mary was uh, sitting at the feet of Christ devotionally, just wanting to hear from the Lord. Uh, there's never a better place to be, right, than at the feet of Christ hearing from the Lord. And Martha was so upset because she says, I'm doing everything. See, I'm an Ita so Italian. I start, my, my hands come out. Forgive me. I start, you know. So my, she comes out, and she starts, you know, what is going on? I'm in the back here. I'm cooking. You know, I got the, the you know, pull out of the francese. I got everything going in the back here. What's going on? Where are you at? What, you know, where's, get married, Jesus. And Jesus so lovingly, is Martha, Martha. Remember that? We saw, I talked about that. If Jesus comes to you and goes, Matthew, Matthew, right, you, you, we ought to listen. He's, it's a term of pay attention, endearment, but pay attention. And he, he says, she's chosen the better, the better thing. In other words, there's nothing wrong. We want to be doers of the word of God, absolutely, to be obedient to scripture. But if we, if we get so caught up in the, the works of God that we miss devotionally sitting at his feet, reading our Bible and enjoying the very presence of God, what are we doing? What's it about? And so, after this time passes, and they had this moment, I imagine all the disciples were paying close attention to that. You know, they're there, they're all gathered. Obviously, Martha's cooking for the, you know, 14, 15, 16 people like that. And the disciples, the apostles heard that when Martha was corrected that way, because even Martha tried to rebuke Jesus. So everybody's probably paying attention. And then in chapter 11, it sort of jumps the scene there. You know, so a little bit of time goes by, and it says, now it came to pass. So, so there's some, we don't know the exact amount of time, but some time came to pass. And what we see now is once again, again, very important for us chronologically, uh, again, six months or less at this point, probably five months, two and a half weeks to the time Jesus is going to go to the cross, his crucifixion. So uh, time is of the essence. And even though he's got so much to do and there's so many people he wants to talk to in the gospel to get preached, he sent the 70 ahead, he sent the 12 ahead before, and he's trying to evangelize this whole area because he knows soon he's going to be, you know, crucified and then resurrected. So time is of the essence. You know what he does? When he's the most busy he could be, he goes and he gets away and he begins to pray to the Father. That's a good example for us. How many of you get busy in here, right? Anybody? Of course, every one of you, your hands should be up. We're always busy, especially the days we're living today with our devices and our gadgets. And, you know, it's telling me I got to be here. And then when I'm there, I got to be here. And But are we taking time out for our prayer life? It's the most important thing. It's our communication with God. Prayer is our mighty weapon. 
And that's where we're going to start this morning. God has us right smack dab in the middle of coming into this. The disciples are watching. They don't want to interrupt. They're kind of at a bat, you know, they're watching. This is Messiah. If there was anyone that can give us an example or teach us how to pray, is it not the Son of God? Amen? Let's bow our heads, we'll pray. Father, just as we're going to read today, Lord, uh, we come to you with thanksgiving, Lord. Lord, you are an eternal God. No beginning and no end. And you are our Heavenly Father, Lord, and we love you. We hallow your name. Glory be to your name, God. There is no one greater or higher. There's no one our knees will bow to but you, Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we do pray, Lord, your will always be done, Lord. I pray that our will, my will, Lord, would be submitted completely to your will. And that every one of us would be in submission here to you, Jesus Christ. And it would, our opinions don't matter, but your will and our obedience to you does, Father. So we pray, God, your kingdom would come and be among us. We're looking for your soon return. Lord, your will is everything in our lives. Lord, we thank you again for this morning, the fact that our feet touch the ground. Lord, we know it's a gift in the present, Lord, each and every day. Lord, the way you bless us, not only physically, but spiritually, Lord. You meet our needs. You've, many of us have eaten breakfast this morning. and Lord, you're so faithful to forgive our sins. <laughs> You absolutely just separate our sins as far as the east is from the west, Lord. No beginning to no end. And thank you for your work on the cross, Lord. And Lord, let our hearts always be turned to one another as well, Lord. That if we've wronged a brother, Lord, that certainly there would be forgiveness. And if we've been wronged, Lord, a brother or sister, Lord, would they forgive us? And Lord, may we hold nothing of our own that way. Lord, protect us. Even as we gather here, we know that there's so much uh, temptation and so much of the world around us, Lord, that wants to vie at our attention, things that are going on. Even now, Lord, we want to lay them at your feet so there's no distraction, Jesus. It's just you and I. Your word going forward. Anoint it, Lord. But God, we pray, please keep us pure. Protect us, Lord Jesus. Deliver us from every temptation, Lord. And certainly, God, we would pray deliver us from the evil one in the very presence, Lord, always looking to be the great accuser against our souls. Jesus, thank you that we are blood-bought and your blood has paid the price. There's nothing we need to do but continue to sit at your feet, Lord, and do your will and work because it brings you glory and honor. Lord, thank you for this time here this morning. Thank you that your word is anointed and lifted higher than your very name. Father, bless this time, speak to our hearts, and draw us ever closer, Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people pray, amen. Well, as we just prayed to our Father, what did we just pray? An example of the Lord's Prayer. We just did that right now. We all just prayed it together. That's our passage here this morning. I thought it fitting that we actually pray in that same vein and spirit. Look at chapter 11, verse 1 together, please. In Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Now it came to pass as he was praying, in other words, Jesus had stepped aside, he's praying, okay, in a certain place when he ceased, again, nobody interrupted him that way, that one of his disciples 
said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples to pray. So John the Baptist, obviously a forerunner of Christ, he was out there, and there were many things that John the Baptist did as a forerunner, pointing to the kingdom of God that's at hand. And one of the things that also we learned from this passage is that John the Baptist taught his disciples at that time, is you need to pray to your Father in heaven. You need to pray to the Lord. It's your communication. And so the disciples, I think of Andrew particularly, other disciples that were disciples of John the Baptist as an example, said, Lord, we've seen that. We know that that's important. Jesus, we know you go off often, and you get alone, and you pray to our Father in heaven. Can you teach us how to do that? We, we want to know how to do that right, because I don't know about you. Maybe, maybe you've had people come up to you and say, you know, how do I pray? Maybe they're a new Christian, or maybe they've been walking with Christ for 20 years, but they, they've never really had a strong prayer life. I've, I've had many people, Pastor, how, how do I pray? What do I say? What do I do? And I often bring them to this passage. This isn't, this isn't a doctrine that specifically tells us that we are to repeat this prayer that we're seeing. You know, I, I grew up, as many of you know, I grew up Catholic. I was raised in a Catholic home, an Italian Catholic home. That's, that's, they kind of go synonymously. They're hand in hand that way. And as I was growing up, I, I was taught to say the Our Father. And I was taught to repeat that prayer over and over again. And uh, to, even to detriment, I was even taught to pray a prayer called the Hail Mary. It's not a prayer that you'll find in Scripture, nor anything God would ever have us do. It's, it's actually the worship of Mary. It's Mariology, and we'll talk a little bit about that this morning. But needless to say, I was taught to pray these things, and I would, pr I would pray these things, and I would pray, you know, 15, 20 times. And if I had been really bad and naughty, which was sort of my M.O. as a kid, you know, I'd, you know, I'd be up there 25 and 50 times on an hourly basis, you know, daily basis, really, because that was the way it was, that was the way that, denomination Catholicism worked it's very works oriented very works based and so again not picking on the Catholics this is the way it was so I understand that I understand what it is to want to know how to pray because I I had been taught to recite prayers but I didn't necessarily understand what it was to open my heart and my mind with all my strength and my soul and speak to God my father who's not distant who's not someone that's just sort of in the universe and space and time, and, but that he's intimate and that he knows every hair on my head and that he knows the very, as we sang this morning, the breath I breathe. Then he has put it inside of me. He knows every thought I have. He knows every fear. He knows every insecurity. And yet he loves me perfectly. And if I was the only person on earth, he would have gone to Calvary for me alone. Because that's how much he's in love with me and how much he's in love with you. And so they're beginning to understand as Messiah stands before him that there's something that they don't have that Jesus does in his communication with the Father. And they want that. They want that intimacy, that prayer life. And so they, they say, will you, will you teach us how to pray? So he said, he said to them, when you pray, say. Now, many people have taken this and said, well, the, the, this is where we get it, right? It's, it's, it's something of vain repetition where to say this. But look at what he was really saying. And look what the example of this is. 
It's very clear. It's a, it's a model, but it's not something that we have to recite exactly because we're told in Matthew's gospel not to pray with vain what? Repetition. So clearly the word of God doesn't contradict itself. So it's not in Matthew's gospel going to say, don't do that. And then all of a sudden, Luke, we're going to read and it says, no, do that. That's not, that's not going to work. There's conflict there. And certainly we know the word of God doesn't contradict itself. What we know and what is being told here is, here's a way to pray. Here's how I pray, Jesus would say, to my Father. And it begins with our Father in heaven. You see, there's actually seven components of this prayer, if you really look at it. It's broken out into seven components. I don't think that's a coincidence, the number seven. You know what that means, completeness in Scripture. I don't think that's a coincidence at all. He begins with our Father in heaven. Why does he start there? Because everything, the most of what happens to us as human beings is an identity crisis, friends. It's an identity crisis. It begins with our understanding of who we are and then our right understanding of who he is. It all begins there. If we don't have the right understanding of an eternal God, we're never going to have the right understanding of a mortal human. That he's eternal. Our father in heaven. He's our father. He has given us life. He has sustained us. It begins there. He is a heavenly father. That is where his abode is. That's, that's where he is with the angels. And it's not to say that he can't be anywhere because he's everywhere, right? He's omnipresent. He's omniscient, all-knowing, right? All-powerful that way. But it begins by drawing our attention away from where? Self. Did you notice that? We need help. I need help with that all the time. It's, it's drawing my attention away from me. And it puts it up on a father that's eternal and heavenly and righteous and just and perfect and loving. All of a sudden, my problems just went like this and they just go like this. Because understanding that my problems seem so big for me, but for an eternal God... When proper reflection and perceptions applied, eternal perception, I like to say spiritual 2020, all of a sudden I realize that my problems are really this big. They're really this big. Because the God of the everything, I don't even dare just say universe, but the God of the everything is so much more magnificent and powerful and larger than any of my circumstances or problems. And so Jesus immediately draws... Even the crucifixion, because doesn't he pray, Lord, if this cup can pass from me? There was a humanality, right? Luke focuses on the human aspect. The, the, the whole gospel of Luke is focused on the humanity of Jesus Christ, right? You know, Matthew, Mark, John, they all have different focuses on the divinity, on the humanity. Uh, Luke is focused on the humanity of the Messiah, of Jesus. And yes, Jesus, too, when he prayed, began looking to our Father, His Father, in heaven, knowing that whatever's going to happen on that cross, death and crucifixion, it'll only be a moment because God has promised the Father to resurrect Him. And He will do what He says He does. No matter how dire it looks, He's eternal. He's bigger than that. He's outside of creation. That's how He starts. And we take it for granted. Our Father in heaven. Yep, yep. Heard that, done that. 
do we really understand what he's trying to speak to us and teach us? That it begins there. It's, it's, it all begins with the identity of who God is, who the Father is. Hallowed be your name. The idea of glorifying, worshiping God, right? It, it, it's where it begins as well. The very next thing is we acknowledge who God is, and then the very next thing we do with our lips and our, our voices and our, our tongues and our, our, our breath is worship. Not, I need this, I'm rubbing the lamp three times. But real worship. I'm talking, bring you to your knees. There's a reason James was known as camel knees. Because his knees were so swollen and full of arthritis. And, you know, because he was on his knees so often praying. It doesn't mean it's the only way you have to pray. You can pray sitting down. You can pray right now. You can pray in so many different ways. But, but this idea of hallow it be your name, Lord Jesus Christ, God Almighty. There is no one greater or higher. It should just roll off the heart. Notice I didn't just say lips. He says they speak with me of their lips, but their heart is what? Far from me. It should roll off the heart. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. This is actually a request. This is a request. This is the sort of number three here. We're up to three, right? This is the request in our prayer, in our example here, of where if we're going to pray for something, it's not wealth, it's not even health, it's, it's, not, it's nothing like that at the moment. It's for God's will to be done. The very, if you're going in order of priority, the next thing is, Lord, your will. We need your will because if it's left up to humanity's will, this isn't going to end well. Lord, your will. It is perfect. Your kingdom come, right? Lord, your way, your kingdom, you come. The kingdom of our, you know, heaven is at hand. He says, Lord, make it on earth the way it's in heaven. In other words, or make it in heaven, excuse me, let me reverse that and play that the right way. Make it in heaven the way it should be on the earth, okay? Take what's in heaven and bring that here now. Please, Lord. That's the request. Number four, give us Day by day, we were taught when I was young in the Catholic, give us this day. But I love the actual manuscript in Luke because it's actually more accurate in the Greek. Give us day by day. There is no guarantee. It goes back to what we're taught in Matthew 6. We worry about tomorrow. There is no guarantee of tomorrow. There's no guarantee that we'll be here tomorrow. And God never promised that. Today has its own affairs, its own concerns, its own things before us. It's amazing how the anxiety begins to melt away. Our sorrow begins to melt away when we don't have to worry about tomorrow because I don't know that tomorrow's going to come. So today is sufficient for its own cares, its own weight. So he says, give us day by day our daily bread. What's he talking about? Certainly he's talking about the physicality aspect of, of a meal, of food, of sustenance. He's, he provide, Lord, meet your provisions. But there's also spiritual provisions that are tied to this, that are rolled up into this. Not just the physical, but he's always dealing with us first in the spiritual realm. Then he meets the physical, but it begins in the spiritual. John 3 is a, a perfect example of that. How can I speak to you things of this earth and heavenly things if you, if you can't understand the spiritual? That's why you must be born again of the spirit. Give us this day by day our daily bread and forgive us our sins 
They're tied together. That's still far. Give us what we need, and Lord, forgive us. We blow it. Now, Jesus certainly didn't need to pray that prayer. He was perfect. But it's a model. It's an example for you and I. And he wouldn't have told us to pray. Who's he speaking to, by the way? Who asked him this question? Please go back up to chapter 11 and look at verses 1 and 2. Who is he talking about? His disciples, born-again believers, Christians. He's not talking to the Pharisees. He's not talking, at this point at least, he's not talking to the religious. He's talking to his disciples, born-again believers. Why is that important? Because we blow it. There's nobody here that's perfect. There's nobody that walked through these doors that's arrived. I certainly didn't arrive. And it's a reminder. He's, he's, Jesus knew that. He's teaching us that. It's not that we shouldn't. That's not the aim. Lord, we want to, we Ephesians 4, we want to walk in your perfection. Yes, I get that. But Lord, I blow it. It's not my heart's desire to do it. But Lord, I'm fallible. You're infallible, God. Please forgive me my sin. It's not my desire nor my aim, Lord. Forgive me my sin. Isn't that beautiful? Look at the order of operation it is, though. Please, it's important. Number five, for we also forgive everyone. Oh, my. Everyone? Circle that in your Bibles. What if somebody's really wronged you or wronged me? Well, God certainly doesn't mean that we need to forgive them. Do you know that scripture is very specific about this? That if you've wronged another, you're to go to the altar, put your gift down. That would have been an offering at that time. Go and get right with your brother or sister. Then you come back and make your offering to the Lord. Because it's true that if the vertical isn't right, the horizontal's not right. But I'll tell you this, it's also true biblically. If the horizontal's not right, your vertical isn't going to be right either. I'm talking about relationships. That's really difficult. This isn't just, you know, those I hate. Or, he says, no. He says, you have to forgive everyone. Now, I know it's, look, the reality is this is hard, especially when someone has cut you so deep, hurt you, betrayed you, done things that are unspeakable, broken your trust, uh, uh, you know, done things that uh, your heart is still 20 years later recoiling from because of the depths of the turmoil. And does Jesus Christ want you to forgive that person? Absolutely. And if you look at me, Pastor, I can't do it. I can't do it. Good. You're being honest. All right. That's where it starts. Transparency. But he can. He can in you. Because he's greater. He's eternal. And through his strength and through his ability, we can do everything and anything. But only through him. You see, it creates a dependency upon God, not an individualism, if I can call it that. But it's important. Forgiveness. For we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This this is interesting. You know, the idea here is purity when you think about it. You know, Jesus desires purity from us all. I know it's something I pray for often. Purity. Lord, remove the dross. I desire probably more than anything else. 
When I talk to my Lord, I desire the purity of the heart of Jesus Christ, to have his thoughts, to do the things he does, to operate as he operates. That beautiful purity that can only come through the Holy Spirit and through Jesus Christ himself. That's what I desire. Anything else for me is missing the mark. That's the standard for a disciple of Christ, to pray and ask that for that beautiful washing of purity. James chapter 1, please turn in your Bibles to James. Hold your finger here. Turn to your right there. If you get to Peter, 1 Peter, you've gone too far. James chapter 1. If you get to Hebrews, you've got to go one more book. James chapter 1. Verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. Isn't that interesting? It very clearly says here that God does not tempt man. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. That's what it says very clearly here in the scripture. So who tempts us then? The world, the flesh, my own flesh, and who else? The devil. It's one of the three. You can always back into one of the three, but it's never the Lord. Now, he may test you and allow that, but that is not the same thing as tempting you. Testing you and tempting you are two different things. Without testing, how, how many of you went to school? Every one of you, right? In here, probably every one of you went to school in some capacity. Did your teacher not come and says, okay, little Jimmy, little Susie, right? We're going we're gonna to have a surprise test today or one of those uh, pop, they used to call them pop quizzes. I don't even know if they call it that anymore. But we're going to have a pop quiz, and everybody's face, or at least mine did. I, I'm sure there were some students that were like, yes! And I was like, no! Right? That was my, no! Photographic memory and all, no! <laughs> and why was that helpful? Was the teacher just doing it just to set you off that morning or an afternoon? No. It was a reflection, an examination of what? of what you understood or don't understand based on what was taught. You have what's called a pre-assessment and a post-assessment. A pre-assessment measures where you believe you are or where the student base is at that point. And then you have something called a post-assessment, which confirms the transmission or translation of information that that person understood what they learned. Without that same spiritual examination, is there really growth in the heart? Do we really know where our faith is unless our faith has been what? Tested? And sometimes God will allow the enemy, he will, he's a lion on a leash, allow him to try to tempt you. But God uses it for good because he says, okay, pop quiz, spiritual pop quiz. How do you handle it when you're faced with coveting or, or something else like that and it comes right before your eyes and, well, God, you're allowing it. But it's not God authoring it. And that's the difference. And so when we're praying to our, our Father, it's, Lord, please, don't lead us into temptation. Don't allow it. Don't strengthen us spiritually so that we are not easy, you know, pawns that way. But deliver us from the evil one. And that's, that's the point there. Deliver us. We all need deliverance, huh? Sometimes you get extremes where people underestimate the power and strength of the devil and they say, oh, let's go kick him in the teeth. They, those, they scare me, those people. They, you know, even the archangel Michael in scripture, I think it was in Jude, he says, Jesus will deal with you. 
And then there's the other that give them way too much weight and say, oh, I can't do anything. I'm, I'm afflicted and persecuted and I have no victory. Woe is me. And that's wrong too. Because Jesus says he has conquered death. He has the keys. He is the victor. And he says in us, he has given us that victory in scripture it teaches. So we're, we're victors. We're overcomers. Because he has overcome the world, right? John. In the Gospel of John. So there's a whole lot in this prayer. That's why it's not about just resuscitation. You know, it's not just reciting it over and over again. No, no, no. Every time we pray in a prayer like this and we go through these seven steps chronologically, what it's doing is it's, it's actually even writing our hearts. It's, it's writing our relationship with the Lord. It's allowing and opening those things that we need to be thinking about in the here and now and for the things to come. And God even teaches us to pray that way because it's our mighty weapon. No matter what we're going through, through prayer, we fight the battle. Many times it's not going out and getting face-to-face. -face Many times it's actually getting on our knees and praying. Now, he further builds on this, okay? He's building on the power of prayer because after all, that was the question by the disciples. And we go into this parable, okay? It's a parable that's known as um, the persistent friend. It's, it's a parable that's been called that, the persistent friend in verses five here and um, onward that way, five through eight. And he said to them, which of you shall have a friend and go with him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, now, obviously, if it's at night, what's, what's closed? The market. In those days, you'd go daily. It's not like today where you go to the super duper and you shop for a week, right? Every day, you'd go to the market. It was fresh. If you go to other parts of the world, it still operates that way today. You go to Italy, it operates like that. You can go to Spain, it operates in portions like that. Middle East, Israel, today, you still go to the market if you go to Israel. Daily, they go out for the provisions. England, even England, right? Not five or six hours away. You know, they're bread. You don't, you don't buy bread. Uh, they're, they, you know, wonder, you know, wonder bread. I don't even know what they, if they make that still. You don't buy it, right? That stuff's like two weeks later. You're like, wow, look at it. It's just, it doesn't, I don't know what they preserve that thing with, right? I don't know. It's like whatever they coat the same things they coat the Kellogg's uh, Frosted Flakes with. Those things just, like, and McDonald's French fries. Have you ever know that? I know I'm like squirrel moment. But have you ever noticed you can drop those in your car and like a month later you clean out the car and they look the same as when you bought them? I don't eat that junk. I don't know what that's preserving. People are like, oh, I feel great. Yeah, because you basically have preserved yourself until the point you stop eating that and then it's trouble, man. People are like, I got healthy. Now all of a sudden I have all these problems. Yeah, because the preservatives aren't in there. But what he's talking about here is he says, look, you know, it's at night. There's no market open. There's nobody that can do that. He says, but he comes because he has a friend visit and is in the Middle East. As a host, you would want to care for that friend. You'd bring him in. You'd feed him. You'd take care of him. Uh, you'd wash their feet. You'd kind of get them oil and anoint them to freshen them up. And then you'd prepare them for bed. But first you would welcome them and feed them because their journey was probably arduous and long. So he says, you take out three buns. Remember we talked about loaves? It's not like what we think of as a loaf of bread. Back in the Greek and the understanding at this time, it's a bun. So he's like a hamburger bun, but, but more like a Kaiser roll or something like that. It would be more smaller than that. Almost like a dinner roll, if I can say what that is, you know what I mean? Like little dinner rolls. That's all he's asking for. He's not asking for like a whole loaf of bread. He's saying just three buns. Because we have, we have someone in. For a friend of mine who's come... 
to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. This would have been horrible for a host. And he will answer from within and say, do not trouble me. The door is shut and my children are with me in bed. So, again, in the ancient times, times when this would have been written or given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in the homes, families slept very close together. The husband and the wife, certainly. The children would often sleep in the same bed or around them as they got older. 12 years old was a big deal in the Jewish faith, 12 and 13 years old. They would then sit sleep towards the feet or even sort of like a, a person distance away. The reason that they were all in this area is because if you, and I think you can still go over to Turkey and some places like that where they still have some of the um, digs and things from archaeology that have been un unearthed that way, you can see that uh, there would be a surface that what we would call slab, a house built on slab, okay? It was dirt, by the way, ground. They didn't have concrete, but I'm just using the term so you understand. And then they would have a subsurface that would go down, and that's where the animals would go. They would actually bring in the animals every evening, and they would bring them in, and they would sleep in the same, if, if you picture a room, in the same room, but they would have like a sub-slab area that would kind of come down, and they would sleep in that lower portion. And then when sunrise would come up, dad would get up, he would take the animals, and they would go, the animals would go back outside, and they were kept outside that way. But when you would sleep, that's why you, you had tight quarters, because all the animals were in there as well, and your animals were your livelihood because of milk and, uh, and, and goat milk and food and meat and, you know, and plowing. If you had to, an agrarian society, you had to plow for food. And if your mule or your animal died, your family could have died because where was their sustenance? How were they going to work the land? You, you understand how important this is. So the animals were treated very, very well as far as bringing them in the house to make sure that they were, you know, some of you with allergies are going, oh my, how would I, Right? Ironically, you don't see a whole lot of that as we go back in history. We don't see a whole lot of the allergies like that at that time. At least we don't have it recorded. He says, and my children are with me in bed. So this kind of raises the scene of why he's saying that. It's not abnormal. They would have slept there. And so what he's saying is somebody's knocking at the door. And if he gets up, what's he going to do? Wake up the kids. And we all know when our kids are down... You want them to rest. You don't want to wake them up and stir them because then they may not fall right back asleep, right? So you want to keep them down, right? He says, I cannot rise and give it to you. Now, this is meant to be a contrast. Remember, this is a parable. So where's the contrast at this point? The contrast here is between the father. Because a human being would say, my kids, remember the father, we're the children, right? My kids are the bed. Sorry, I'm busy. I can't do it right now. You're on your own. But the contrast is we can come to the Father and pray anytime, and he's always listening and available to help his children. That's, that's why he's drawing this out in the, in the parable. And he's going to keep drawing that out as we go through the rest of this chapter. He says, I say to you, though, he will not rise and give to him because he is, or sorry, he says, I say to you, you though, will he, or is the idea, will he not rise and give to him because he's a son? Yet because of his persistence, what is he teaching us? Persistence of what? What's the context in chapter 11 since we've beginning? What have we been talking about? What did the disciples come and ask Jesus how to do? Pray. Pray. What's context? Context is king. It's good hermeneutics. We're in the context of prayer. So what's the persistence of? Is it just being persistently annoying? No. No. Persistence in prayer. That's what he's teaching here, right? 
persistence and prayer. He will rise and give him as many as he needs. If a man will do this, how much more our heavenly father, right? Who doesn't, who doesn't have a heart motive of a man, but a pure and righteous God. That's what he's bringing out here. Now, in verse 9, he says, So I say to you, ask, right? This is the acronym, actually acronym ASK, A-S-K. He not only breaks it out as ASK, but it's actually an acronym, A-S-K. He says, so I say to you, ask, and it will be given, underline ASK, right? It will be given to you. Seek, S-E-E-K, right? Underline that, please. That means asking in submission, right? And you will find, knock, and it will be open to you. He made it so we couldn't forget. He used three words that, that together actually form the very first word, ask. Did you ever notice that? A-S-K. Ask, seek, knock. When you take the three together and you make an acronym, A-S-K, it actually brings out the first thing he told them to do, ask. Did you ever see that before? It's beautiful how the Lord put that in there. for So we could remember. Many of these things were passed down orally as well, so you wouldn't forget. For everyone who asks, receives. I mean, this is great encouragement and promise here. He's saying, you will receive. This is a promise. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be open. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? He says, if you ask, if you seek, and you knock, if you come to the father, is he not going to answer your prayer? Now, I think this needs to be, again, in our day, brought into context. He didn't have to, Jesus didn't have to do this because they didn't have this nonsense of positive confession 2,000 years ago, right? So they didn't have the nonsense, you know, the Joel scenes of the world, you know, all the pod, name it and claim it, blab it and grab it. There was none of this, you know, positive confession nonsense. So they didn't have to turn or, you know, Jesus didn't have to bring that out. It wasn't there yet. But the idea here is he's very careful in the words that he uses here. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you, seek. Now, it's all regarding prayer. When we go back up to prayer, did we not see very clearly in the prayer, in the example of the prayer that Jesus Christ has given us, in what I call the third, or verse two, but it's the third one down, did he not say, your kingdom come, your will be done? So he already had taught the disciples to pray for the will of God, not for their will. In other words, for the will of the Lord to be done. It's already operating under that understanding. So now when we come down here and he's teaching them and he's telling them about persistent prayer, right? And he's now speaking to his disciples again, okay? Because that's who he's talking. He's talking to believers, not talking to unbelievers. He says, when you ask and you seek and you knock and you're praying according to the will, you should have an expectation that God is going to answer that prayer. It is actually um, sinful not to expect that. If you know very clearly the Lord has confirmed something and that he is telling you to pray in some way and you doubt, it, it is missing the mark by definition. It is unbelief, right? This isn't positive confession. This is understanding the will of God by sitting at his feet and then praying accordingly and then believing what you're praying. I mean, that's what we really read here. And, and again, it's prayer. It has to be into the will of God I mean, after all, it's for his disciples, so we know we're not, we know that we're not dealing with the world that's like, oh, and I would like a Ferrari, right? Or something that they're coveting, or that has no place. I, 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 there's no place that way in my prayer. 
I, I can't speak for anyone else. I have no business asking the Lord for a Ferrari. I don't need one. It, it, there's no benefit to me to have one, right? It's not going to further the kingdom of God for me or for the Lord in having a Ferrari. If anything, it would create for the congregation a stumbling block, probably, for some people here, maybe. I hope all of you, because if I was you, it would be a huge stumbling block for me. So, so if you drive up in your Ferrari, I just ask you to give me a ride around the block one time, please. <laughs> After all, I am Italian. It is made in Italy. You know, I please. It's the closest I'm going to get. Okay? Just let me touch it or smell it. You know, no, I'm joking. The point I'm getting at, in all seriousness, you know, I, I like to bring a little levity in here, but the reality is, is he's not joking about this and how he's teaching us to pray and that it begins with self-surrender. It begins the death, the death to self. It begins in discipline. Remember, God is the author. We're not the author. And it makes that presumption that when we pray, we're not praying as though we're the author of our lives. That's the important piece here. God is the author. We're praying in communion with the Lord. So often, Lord, if it's your will, let me, and we say this that way, and that's good. It's also important that we read the word of God and let him communicate with us and describe his will to us in detail so we know how to effectively pray. And many times through the power of the Holy Spirit, we may not even know what to pray. It says sometimes the Holy Spirit gives us utterings. Sometimes in your prayer language, you may pray in tongues and you don't even understand, what, but you're praying accordingly, right? It's not something we do when we're all gathered that way because the Holy Spirit is, it's his word, is not, is it not inspired by the Holy Spirit? So when I'm reading this, if somebody started yelling out in tongues, what would the Holy Spirit be doing? Interrupting himself. And he would never do that. That would be odd. If you're speaking in a tongue and somebody's, and I'm reading the word which is inspired by the Holy Spirit, there's a clash there. But if you're praying and you're, it's an afterglow or you're praying at prayer, corporate prayer, or you're praying at home and, and you start speaking, it, well, then that would be, of course, very normal. Or I'm not saying everybody, you know, has to pray in a tongue, but it would be, it would be, it would be not abnormal if I could say it that way. It's nothing, nothing wrong with that. And so the idea here is to be sometimes even uttering we're not sure. The point is, is our father's not a tricker. He's not a trickster, right? If a son asks for bread from the father among, will he give him a stone? Of course not. Even a, only a wicked father would do that. If his son came to him and said, dad, I'm hungry. Can I have a piece of bread? And he said, here, son, eat the stone. I mean, what kind of father would do that? Only a wicked, earthly human father could dare to do something like that with the motive of a, a, a carnal heart. But no godly, heavenly father would ever do something like that. He says, or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Yeah, here, you know, how about some snake, you know, today? Yeah, you know, I just wanted a pesce. I just wanted a little fish, you know? He, I think it's almost, he's using logic, but he's also speaking to such mighty truth. He said, that's the problem is that when people come to me, the father, he says, they come sometimes thinking that, I want to hurt them because of, or I'm not going to give them my very best because of what their experience has been, maybe with an earthly father or an earthly mother. And we can't, we can't minimize that. Some of us have not had godly mothers and fathers growing up. So we have a poor experience or a poor relationship in that. And often that can come in and affect our eternal relationship because we don't recognize that God is not like you and I. No matter how we've tried to uh, raise our children or do those things. God's ways are far beyond our ways. And he has not got an inch of carnality in him. 
an inch of evil or wickedness. And for those that are here that have had terrible things happen to you by an earthly father or a mother, please recognize that's not who we're talking about in scripture. We're talking about your heavenly father who is not even able to do such evil. He is not able to do evil whatsoever. And he will treat you and love you the way you have always desired to be loved and fulfill your deepest desires for love that only a heavenly God can give you. Or if he asks for an egg, will you offer him a scorpion? If you then being evil, and, and again, he's not saying every father in here is evil. He's comparing it because it's all about the standard. When we compare things in life, it becomes about the standard. What standard are we using? The standard isn't you and I. It's not the person sitting next to you or to your left or right. In this particular case in context, the comparison here is our Father in heaven. That's who we've been talking about. That's who we're praying to. And compared to God in heaven, every single man on this earth is evil in comparison to God. And Romans 1 through 3 also build on that. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. So he says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give? And this is so powerful. The Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Right? This is a promise of provision. I hope you're, you're, you're writing these in your notes in the margins of your Bible. This is great. What he's talking about here is great fullness of the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, a beautiful passage of God's care for his children that he didn't leave us to figure it out on our own. That he sent the Holy Spirit to be with his children, to care for his children so that we can have that beautiful right relationship and have the provisions for what we need to be victors in this world. And then it sort of jumps, right? In verse 14, and he was casting out a demon. So we go from this wonderful teaching about prayer and how to pray and then all of a sudden oh by the way there's a demon and he just walks over and he's like right he starts to cast out a demon but there's a reason he's allowing this to happen Jesus doesn't he's very efficient with his time and his ministry he's bringing this out and the Holy Spirit's bringing this out because it's going to open the opportunity for this lawyer to go and basically challenge him and then you and I get to be the benefactors of his righteous and godly answer and he was casting out a demon, and it was mute, right? In Matthew chapter 12, verse 23, a parallel passage, um, we see here that um, as this is going to go on, there's going to be somebody that's marveling. There's people that are going to be asking questions. Matthew chapter 12, 23 tells us it's actually a Pharisee that's going to be asking these questions, okay? That's going to be coming here. So it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke and the multitudes marveled. And in those multitudes, as I said, Matthew 12, 23 tells us there's Pharisees and religious leaders in attendance here, okay? So this is a powerful demonstration of, uh, you might even say a sign that Messiah is all powerful and able to do these things. And they all marveled, right? They, they you know, this idea of, uh, you ever have somebody just in such awe, they go, you know, the, the mouth draws open, just a, a gawk, kind of like a wow. That's what this is describing in the Greek. Just a, like, did you just, everybody just saw that. There's how many thousands of people, God, nobody can deny this. Did you see what he just did? He just delivered that, that, that mood. He, speak, he can speak now from a deep, you know, everybody's just seeing this. But some of them said, and again, Matthew chapter 12 tells us who those some are. Because he breaks this up. There's two groups here. There's some and the others. 
and, and it'll make more sense as we go through this. He, if he, verse 16 goes into the others, but the some here, if you're underlining that in your Bible, that's talking about the Pharisees, okay? But some of them said, he casts out demon by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. So what he's, this is, this is pretty a heavy thing to be leveraging against God. He, what he's saying here is um, he's not doing it by the Holy Spirit or by God. He's doing it by the Satan himself, by a demon, that he is doing it under demonic influence. That's what they're accusing the son of God operating in, demonic influence. That's, if that's not blasphemy, I don't know what is. Okay, that, this is a very heavy thing. And this is being leveraged and levied by the Pharisees that are saying this, okay? So this is what, what is said here. And why is this happening? Because the Pharisees are watching all those mouths gawk at all this that had just been done. And they're just blown away by this. And what are they afraid of? They're afraid of losing the authority over the people. Because up to this point, those religious leaders had the authority over the people. They were drawing men and women to themselves, these Pharisees. And now they're afraid of losing it all because Jesus is there. He's doing this work. It's Messiah. And they're all beginning to follow, as they should, the Lord. And they don't like that. And they're afraid. So they're, you know, they're, they're, they're going to say, well, he's not. So how, did, how are they going to answer it? I mean, oh, he's doing it by a demon. That's, that's all they had. I mean, they couldn't deny the miracle. They couldn't deny that this man lived righteously. And was a godly man. They couldn't deny any other aspect of his being or his, his earthly ministry for the two and a half years up to this point. They could say nothing. So the best they could do was, well, that must he's doing it by a demon. That, that's all they had. Just carnal, right? Others, now, we'll talk about who the others in a little bit are. But in verse 29, I'll break that passage out of when we talk about others. But it says, others testing him sought from him a sign from heaven. Different than the first group. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided. So what he's going to do is he's going to explain the illegitimacy and just the ridiculous logic, or we would say illogical, um, claims by the Pharisees. He's just basically going to shut this down pretty quick. Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? He even said, look, you're so foolish with this. Satan himself is, is not even stupid enough to do something like this. That Satan himself isn't going to divide his own, his own kingdom because he knows it would fall because it's divided. He says, so this is not, your logic is just completely ridiculous because even Satan wouldn't, is not foolish enough to do something that stupid. That's what he's saying to them. Because you say I cast out demons by Beelzebub, right? Now this is important what he's going to say here. He's going to build on the inconsistency because he's going to go and say, well, wait a minute. Don't your Jewish leaders go out and pray and deliver demons or try to deliver demons from Jewish men and women? And you don't accuse them of operating under the spirit of a demon. But now you accuse me? Can't be both ways. You can't have it both ways. You see what he says here? Inconsistency. He says, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons... Okay, he's talking about the Jewish delivery ministry, if I can say it that way. Who, you know, the Pharisees' disciples. Who do they cast them out? Therefore, you will, they will be your judges. 
But I cast out, and here's the third sort of point, but I cast out demons with the finger of God. Surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. At this point, you can't help but acknowledging Messiah. That's what he's saying to them. Me, him, Jesus. When a strong man, now he gives them an illustration because maybe they're not understanding the words. So now he's going to paint the picture for those that are visual. So if you're a visual, uh, spatial learner, he's now speaking to you. And he was speaking to those Pharisees, just so nobody lost it, right? Any teacher in here, you appreciate it. Jesus Christ used mixed modalities, okay? If you're a teacher, you'd appreciate what I'm saying here. It's a, just sort of a joke, but he really does. He, he makes sure that nobody gets lost in the message. When a strong man fully armed, right? So now you have this idea. Strong guy, fully armed. Guards his own palace. His goods are in peace, he feels good. He stands outside. He stands inside. The palace, the house, we're in a, we know that he's talking about the body. He's talking about demon possession. He's saying that if a strong man comes in and he's inside the house and he's there demonically, he's going to guard the house to make sure we're the temple of the living God, to make sure that, you know, nobody else tries to barge in and take his house. You, you get the illustration? You see the picture in your mind? But when a stronger... And that would be Jesus. Then he comes upon him and overcomes him. He takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. And this is exactly what happens in the spiritual realm. When you cast out a demon and that person receives Jesus Christ, that is the spiritual transaction that just took place. You and I may not see it with the physical eye, but supernaturally and spiritually, that's what happened. That demon, because of Jesus, comes into delivered, comes out, then Jesus comes into that man or woman's heart, and he is the stronger man. And the Satan is not stronger than God, so when that strong man tries to come back, Jesus is standing there, you know, are we going to do this? We did this once already, if I, you know, are we going to do this again? You know, that's me paraphrasing, you won't find that in scripture that way. I'm giving you the illustration here, and what happens in the demonic realm? They can't do nothing, they're defeated. So that's why we know a, a believer, a, a born-again Christian, cannot be demon-possessed. It's this passage right here that confirms that. There's no way to misunderstand this. The strong man and the stronger. And if you didn't have that all clear, look, look how he continues to build it out. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. So... <laughs> This is important. What he's saying here is, look, God's kingdom's not divided either. The, the accusation was, you're a Beelzebub. He says, no, because obviously Satan, he wouldn't, isn't that foolish to even do that? He said, so it's being done of the spirit of God, the kingdom of God. He says, but further, when Jesus Christ comes into the heart, right, he is the stronger man. But then you take it one step further. Oh, by the way, Pharisees, since you're making this accusation, let me make it clear to you as well. That not only is Satan's kingdom not divided, but neither is God's. Neither is God's kingdom. Pharisees, you just tread it on a very, very shallow uh, ice or on a tight line. You, just, you ought to think about what you just said here and what you just accused the very son of God of. He said, because in heaven and spiritually speaking, there is no gray. There's no gray. It's very absolute. If you prefer black and white, however you want to, you know, dichotomy of that. Very clear. There is no gray in scripture. Very absolute. There's no relativism. 
That's why it's a work of human, humanism, the humanism movement. It's not biblical. It's not what feels good for you, feels good for me, and we just all kumbaya. That's not how scripture, it, that's protection from the Lord. He said, so he does not gather with me, scatters. And this is what the multitude witnessed, right? They witnessed the spiritual, the supernatural, and then they also witnessed the Pharisees trying to do this. Now, we'll close with this, uh, this next passage here. When an unclean spirit, that's a demonic spirit, goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest. This is further description of what he was just talking about because he just introduced something to them in a spiritual way that they maybe weren't aware of, spiritual transactions that were taking place, you know, deliverance of demons, what's happening in the spiritual realm. So certainly he's going to build on that so they understand, and we would as well here, right? He's continuing to just explain how this whole thing works in Scripture. When an unclean or a demonic spirit goes out of a man, he goes, when he's been, in other words, demon-possessed, and then he's exercised of that demon, is what I'm saying, and what's saying here. He goes through dry places seeking rest. And finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. That's how we know house. Circle that. That's how we know that the house he's talking about in the previous example was what? The body. The temple of the living God. He defines it right here for us. That way there's no mis- Scripture is the best commentary for Scripture. There's no reason to, to use another commentary that way. Scripture defines itself. So he turns around and he says, look. He says, I will return from my house in which I came. Well, that tells us a couple things. First of all, when this demon's going back and forth, he, he clearly likes to possess human beings. We saw it when he was cast into swine at one time. He didn't, they didn't, demons didn't like that, did they? They turned around and ran down a cliff and killed the swine so that they could do what? Go back into the, because they didn't want to go to the abyss. They, for whatever reason, the demons like possessing human beings. There's something about being in the human being they like. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. So now the demon comes back to the person that was previously demon-possessed. And now all of a sudden, that person's no longer, everything's swept, put back in order. That person was delivered. They're, what we would say, is spiritually healthy at that point or getting spiritually healthy. Then he goes, he may not be a believer yet, but they're, they're getting, they're delivered. They're able to physically, maybe the better way to say they're physically healthy, I can say it that way. Maybe not so spiritually healthy at this point, but they're physically healthy. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. So this is important. If you are ever called, if you're an elder of the church or a pastor or, or a friend, and you, and, and you hear of somebody that's demon-possessed, We've had that at the church, I think it was a, about a month or and a half, a month or two ago. One of the pastors here was contacted um, about a woman that was uh, demon-possessed and asked if um, she could come in. The family fellowship's here. She's been having all kinds of issues, and they clearly knew she was demon-possessed. She uh, you know, distributed and displayed all the things that a demon-possessed person would. And says, can we bring her? We, we need you to help us. And so one of the pastors stood up and says, okay, you know, and called one of the elders and they prayed, and the person came in, and I, I, I remember speaking to the pastor. I said, look, I was not available that day. I said, look, if, if you're going to do this and you're going to exercise that demon, which you have the power and authority of Jesus Christ to do, then you have to be very clear that that person is ready to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Because if you don't do that and you exercise that demon... As it says right here in verses 24 through 27 or 26, well, you know what's going to happen next. Jesus doesn't mince words. He's, they're going to go out and find seven stronger, more demonic, more wicked, more evil, and they're going to come, and the, the 
position of that person is going to be worse than where they were before. And th this is heavy stuff. This is real. You can't, you can't read every other part of Scripture and go, that's true, that's true, and then come to this passion and go, oh, I don't know if I believe that. No, no, no. All word is given by inspiration. And so clearly he's telling us this is what happened. So I encourage you, if you're ever in a position, anybody on the care teams here, we have a group of care teams that, you know, regionally, if you're ever called up, somebody says, hey, something's going on. You know, I have a friend, a family member, their demons. And you go, the very first question you need to know from that person is, are they at a place where they're broken and they're going to receive Jesus Christ? Because if they're not, my encouragement to you is to counsel them to get to the place of where they're willing to receive Christ before you ever try to deliver them from that demon. And then when you pray that and they are ready and you deliver them and then you, they accept Christ, you'll never have to worry because as we read earlier in verses 16 through 22 and 23, excuse me, the stronger man will be in the house. Do you see that? The stronger man will be in the house. They can never be demon possessed again. But if the stronger man's not in the house, the strong man can come back and set up guard in the house. It's very important we understand these things. These things are very real. A lot of times we don't interact with it as much because we have the pagan god of mammon in this country. But in so many other countries where riches and comfort and all that isn't so abundant, they're not chasing after the pagan god of mammon. So Satan very clearly will use much of the demonic realm and you see it very often. Uh, I've gone over to different countries and you clearly see it on mission trips, and it's, it's very real. You see people throwing down, vomiting. I mean, it's, it's intense. It's real. I've, I can tell you it's very, very real. It's not something to play with. If you're not, if you're not prayed up and you're not called, uh, you know, let's not have a Sons of Sceva situation here on our hands, right? You know what I mean? If you're not prayed up, you're not called, then call a pastor, call an elder of the church, and ask for help. But um, you need to be prayed up because these things are real. These things are very real. I don't want anybody here frightened again because if you're a born-again believer in Christ, you can't be demon-possessed. You don't have to worry about that if there's any young people in here. I don't want anybody worrying about that. Um, the only protection, as we read here, is, is that then he goes and takes them seven more spirits, more wicked themselves, and the state of the, uh, the last was worse than it was of the first. And here again, the only protection for our house, our body, is to, is to have Jesus dwell in us and have the Holy Spirit because... He's always the stronger man. And it happened. No, let's, we'll stop. We'll stop there. Yeah, we'll stop there for today. Can I have the musicians come forward? We'll pick up in verse 27, should the Lord tarry next week. If you want to go ahead and read ahead the rest of this chapter. And then we'll probably go into the first half of chapter 12, okay? If you have any questions after service or fellowship, please come on up and see me. I know this passage often I get a lot of questions um, because it, it's treading on some really heavy spiritual things. Would you stand if you're able and we'll pray and um, certainly seek our Lord here this morning and my prayer is I, I heard Brian pray this morning is that we all walk out of this building this morning changed. Uh, we walk out of this building more in love with Jesus. We walk out of this building being poured more into the Lord just poured into us so that we can do what? Pour out and pour into others. Amen? Amen? Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your holy word. Thank you that, Lord, this is not an aimless walk or a um, figure it out as we go, Lord. Uh, you've clearly uh, are a God of absolutes, and you have clearly gone before us. And 
bless us so, so abundantly, Lord. We can't even begin to thank you for the way you have blessed us. Oh, Lord, we thank you that we can bring our circumstances, our trials, our tribulations, Lord, to you. And Lord, then know that Jesus, in all ways, you have suffered likewise. And you're very intimate and aware of exactly what's going on in our lives this morning. And, and Lord, you know exactly what we need. And thank you for teaching us to be persistent in asking and seeking and knocking, Lord. That we would uh, continue to be praying in your will, Lord, for the things that need to be done, Lord, here in earth. Uh, Lord, as you transform and conform our hearts, our souls, to your likeness, Jesus Christ. We know it's a work of sanctification and we know it's a work of uh, submission on our part. And it's the rest of the work is on you, Jesus, to do that work and finish that good work you've begun in us. And you promised to do that. But it does, it does require we submit. So, Lord, I pray that if there's anything we're holding on to, that we would submit. If there's anyone we haven't forgiven, Lord, I pray today would be the day we'd call that person up. Or we, even if they're not talking to us, Lord, in our hearts with you, God, we'd bring them before you and we'd ask for forgiveness for ourselves. And then, Lord, that they would forgive us for the wrong we've done to them. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified in all of this, that your name would be lifted up, and that, Lord, we would continue to decrease and you would continue to increase, Lord. Lord, I really believe our hearts and your heart and desires that we're ever decreasing and you're ever increasing until we meet you face to face, Lord Jesus Christ. God, we pray these things from the depths of our hearts, even very often against our own fears and, and trepidations. But we give these things to you, Lord, because we know it to be right and to be holy, set apart, and pure. And so, Jesus, receive our, our alms this morning. Receive our prayers this morning. Lord, receive all of us. We love you, Jesus. And all God's people pray. Amen. White as snow, white as snow. Though my sins were as scarlet, Lord, I know, Lord, I know that I'm clean and forgiven through the power of your love, through the wonder of your love, through faith in you I know that I can be. White as snow, white as snow, though my sins were as scarlet, Lord, I know, Lord, I know that I'm clean and forgiven through the power.
you see us and that's how we are lord we are cleansed perfectly if we're for placing our faith and trust in you, Jesus, for forgiveness of our sin. You've righted all the wrongs in our heart, Lord. You've established us, and you keep us here today. I pray, God, in your will, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that you will go before us and protect us, that you will keep us, Lord, that our days would be full of your love and experience the depths, Lord the things that you want to pour out through us and in us. And I pray we would be others-focused, Lord. And God, you would be glorified, not only in just what we say, but what we do, how we think, and the purity of our hearts. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for this time that we, we've spent with you this morning. And Lord, I already long for more of it. We pray and ask Jesus Christ that you would be lifted high up and father there would be no other name on earth that would ever be declared holy and righteous but you receive our praise again this morning we thank you for all you've done in us and through us and by your holy name we thank you and pray these things lord jesus christ and god's people prayed amen, amen. god bless you all i love you and have a beautiful morning